Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Today, we share with you our conversation with Leah Robinson, an attorney and state and local tax partner with Mayor Brown in New York. In this episode, Leah notes some of the most interesting tax cases she has litigated, her thoughts on what could be deemed government overreach, and where she has seen some recent state tax auditor gotchas that we should all be aware of. Listen in. Hi, Leah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And we're really you know, excited to get this chance to talk to you and pick your brain. And I guess to start, so you worked in government for the IRS you know, for a couple of years and in private practice for various firms. What are some of the most interesting cases that you've seen and you've litigated in the kind of state and local tax area? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I've in the 20 years I've been doing tax work, I've, I've worked in four places. I started off at the IRS Office of Chief Counsel and then have spent time in three different firms. And each one has been such a different experience. Working at IRS Chief Counsel was, you know, right out of the LLM program. I didn't know anything. And after being there for two weeks, I got put on the strategic trial attorney team for what was at the time the world's biggest transfer pricing case in history. It was a $6 billion case. It was like ExoSmith-Klein litigation. Since then, there has there have been bigger transfer pricing cases. But at the time, that was the biggest tax case that the U.S. had ever had. And there were 20 of us on it. And it was all of these really great experiences. And the main takeaway for me from that case was that I wanted nothing to do with transfer pricing. <laughs> and so... Yeah, so I I left the federal government. I picked up the phone and called the one attorney I knew in New York uh, who wasn't on the GlaxoSmithKline case, and he happened to be a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery. Um, And I called him up. He had been one of my professors, state and local attorney, uh, Richard Levy. And I, I said, do you know anybody in New York who's hiring? And he said, oh, yeah, I'll hire you. Come in tomorrow. And I, you know, two weeks later, started at McDermott and thought to myself, this is great. I went from federal work where all I did for a couple of years was transfer pricing, which is international, right? Domestic to international. And I'm like, now I get to do state and local, which means I'll never see transfer pricing again. This <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, that's what I was going to no, say. Circle forward no. 20 years, and now we have all this like state. What are states now doing with transfer pricing? And I made it about a month before there was any transfer pricing work dropped on my desk. I, but I really, for that month, I was so happy. And and right around then was when New Jersey um, started using what later was disclosed to be Chambridge for transfer pricing work. And a few Southern states, Alabama, Louisiana, they, they were also also using it. And I was asked to start looking at it. You know, one of our clients got like a $100 million assessment um, transfer pricing. And I started looking at it because I had just come from, you know, the, the the federal practice of using it. So I did have that wonderful month of, of no transfer pricing. Um, and, <laughs> and now, right, it's huge. So, so to sort of, you know, exactly come full circle earlier this year, um, one of my partners and I won a transfer pricing case in New Jersey, where having the experience from the federal background was really helpful. You know, I worked a lot when I was with the IRS Office of Chief Counsel. I was working with the experts. You know, there were 20 of us on the case. 
and everybody had you know their role obviously there there was the the mastermind of the overall strategy who did everything on the case but the rest of us each had a designated role and my role um was to work with a couple of our experts and in fact those are experts that you now see regularly in the state transfer pricing cases so it, it's oh, a, interesting it's a small world you know it's a, it's a very very small world but then after after there I went to McDermott and I was at McDermott for nine years and I loved working there and it really was wonderful I had the great experience of working with two of the best known state tax attorneys at the time Art Rosen and Peter Faber and they were really great um, mentors and teachers and then I left there and went to what's now Eversheds which was like really incredible being at a dynamic practice that really understood business development and connecting with the market, you know, parties, right? For nine years, I wasn't invited to this then Sutherland parties. And all of a sudden I was there and it was, it was great. Um, and I, you know, I learned a lot at both of those places, but then I had the opportunity to build a state and local practice at a firm that didn't have one, okay. which, is why, which is why I, uh, a team and I left, you know, probably the fastest growing practice there was um, to, to do it on our own. And it, it, it's been great. So, you know, what your, your, I think your specific question was, what are some of the more interesting cases that I've worked on? I think all of us always remember like the first you know, case that we got to litigate, um, or at least those of us who do litigation, you know, the first case that I got to see through, you know, help with the audit, work on the litigation, actually get a decision and win. For me, that was an IBM case in New Jersey on extraterritorial income. And that was a fun case because I, there was an argument I really wanted to make and the partner in charge on that case, I was an associate at the time, the partner in charge didn't like my argument. So, you know, we I wrote the brief and I had the argument in there and the partner crossed it out. We don't need this argument. Let's go with the other. So I made all the other changes, gave it back. I left my argument in there. And on the second round, he crosses it out again. I'm like, I really know it's a good argument. On the third draft, he said, fine, leave it in. Um, and, and in fact, we won the case both on the argument, the primary argument, which was the one that, you know, we always knew we were going to make. But the judge also addressed my secondary argument, and we won on that too. And what was great about that was primary argument was a statutory argument, you know, about the law and how a particular regulation meshed with the statute. Okay. My argument was a fact argument about how, how that company's facts applied to the provision. And we won on both. And what was important is when, um, when cases go up on appeal, Right. There is in many states, the legal issues are reviewed de novo, meaning the appellate division, right, looks at it with fresh new eyes. But factual issues, there's deference to the decision below. So had the state appealed, which they didn't appeal, that, that case is, you know, still still on the books as a win, but had they appealed, we would have had like a presumption in our favor for the decision because of the factual argument that I, you know, kept kept pushing and pushing out. <laughs> I would give to associates to ignore when the partner tells you to take it out, you know, in retrospect, maybe not, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess in retrospect, it was the right thing to do. But um, so that was one of the, you know, your first win, I think always, you know, sort of resonates. But I think probably my favorite case that I've ever worked on, although there's a lot 
that I've loved working on. Um, I think I fall in love with every project I'm on, to be perfectly honest. Well, I guess two. Two would be tied for favorite. I got to argue in front of the Missouri Supreme Court at the beginning of 2020, and that was like mind-blowing. Or was that 2019? I didn't COVID <laughs> screwed up everything for me. Right. right. It was January before the world shut down. So. I wasn't wearing a mask. How about yeah. that? Like at some point pre-mask and I was in person. The bigger concern was whether I was checking my firearm because there were signs about checking your firearm. Um, I did not have a firearm. Um, you know, there weren't mask signs, right? Now you walk into a building and there's signs about masks. Back then and in Missouri, the signs on the door were, you know, declare your firearm before you walk <laughs> Don't worry about a mask because that didn't exist yet. Right. We're not in New York anymore, are we? Right. So like that was a really fun case arguing in front of the the Missouri Supreme Court. But I think like my favorite, favorite case, if I'm really honest, and hopefully the other companies that I do work for aren't listening, but my favorite, favorite case was um, a case that that, uh, I litigated along with Peter Faber for a company called Labor Ready. And it had nothing to do really with the substance of the case, but it was a procedural issue. We had had an audit. And the audit got resolved. Actually, New Jersey at the time had an amnesty, and the audit got resolved through the amnesty. But then we knew that the taxpayer and the state had not reached an agreement as to the issues for future periods. Right. It, was a sales, it was a sales tax case. And the question was for temporary help services. Do you look, is temporary help services its own category and therefore either taxable or not? Mm-hmm. Or do you look through? And if the temp is cleaning floors, it's taxable because that's, you know, because janitorial services are taxed yep. of property. Yep. Or if they are filing, right, they go to an office and they're filing, it's not taxable. Like, so is it its own service or do you sort of look through? That was the Ooh, issue. That's um, interesting. But, we had a really big disagreement, right? They solved old years because the amnesty New Jersey had had this great interest break. And so how could we not settle? But we didn't know what to do going forward. And right. there wasn't an audit, but we knew we were on the state's radar. So we filed a declaratory judgment action. So in other words, there wasn't an audit. There was no assessment. There was no refund claim denial. There was no assessment. There was nothing. There was no traditional ticket to court. Yes. To get a decision. Um, but we sort of went outside of normal tax procedure and decided to look, you know, at what what's what are big court rules. And I I use big court to describe non-tax court. I maybe I shouldn't. What do they do in some of the other courts when you need to know an answer, but there's no way to get one? And so we filed a declaratory judgment action in tax court, which basically said we know that there's a judiciable controversy, meaning we disagree with the state, but we don't have another option to get an answer. And so we filed that. The state very much protested. You can't do this. You don't have a refund denial. You don't have an assessment. You have administrative remedies that you haven't exhausted. And ultimately, we got to briefed it, had oral argument, and the judge agreed with us. The judge agreed that there was no way for that taxpayer to resolve this disagreement other than bumping to tax court. And so like that case to me is my favorite because the we thought really far outside of the box and yes. the company supported it, right? Sometimes yes. you get great ideas. Yes, and they don't want to pay for it, right? Right, just reluctant, right? Like they don't want their name associated with something or the money or whatever. That particular company was very 
Um, we worked directly with the general counsel and they were very willing to, they, they wanted an answer. Um, so we ended up getting the, you know, a win on the declaratory judgment. Now, interestingly, lots of other taxpayers have tried to do declaratory judgment actions since then, and every single one has failed. Wow. So it's, Interesting. It's, it's a very narrow set of facts where you can do it. Um, and I think that some some folks have tried to read that a bit more broadly. And even the same judge who who granted our declaratory judgment action has denied several others. So, you know, I don't want don't want to plant in people's heads as like, here's a way to get a quick answer on an issue because it it does not always get you there. But when the facts line up, it, it's a really great tool that empowers the taxpayer. Why wait? Three years for an audit. Right. And yeah, you're living in uncertainty forever. It's very stressful. Especially yes. in sales tax. When it's really yes. not a liability, it's right. your customer's right. liability, but you don't want to overcharge your customers. Mm-hmm. So if there's a way to get the answer quickly. So what was the answer? Look through uh, line by line or treat the item so, as taxable? So we never got an answer from the court. Um, okay. The territory judgment action got us into court. Okay. And then there's this really frustrating twist. Um, the judge said, I can grant you access to the court through the declaratory judgment, right? I okay. said, you can come here. But I can't stop the division of taxation from doing an audit now. Okay. So the state ended up starting an audit. Okay. And wouldn't respond to discovery, wouldn't do anything, because they said, well, we're in the middle of an audit. We don't have an answers. Oh, interesting. So, so what it really ended up doing in that case was it kickstarted the audit, which then it got resolved without a, a court decision. So I think there's still in that was a New Jersey case. I think there's still no New Jersey answer on that particular issue. I mean, to me, the answer is clear. It is its own enumerated. It's its own separate service, and it's not listed in the enumerated service. This is taxable, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's not taxable. Right. It's not practical to look through. What if you're a temp who? Half of the day, you're going to be doing filing. And the other half of the day, you're going to, I don't know, be wiping down whiteboards, right? right. That's service to TPP. But the, like, it's just not, it's just not practical to expect temps to report or, or, or the customer or the temp agency right. to keep track on an hour. You know, they're generally- What am I going to do? Like task my day as to like what you did? Correct. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the analogy I really, really liked- um, particularly because our judge had had younger children at the time, was to a babysitter, mm-hmm. right? And like I've babysat, you know, not anymore, um, but, you know, I've babysat. When you babysit, half of the time you're looking at the kid. And then I used to do the dishes that were in the sink because it drove me nuts if there were still dishes in the sink. Right. And I would do some other things. So like as a babysitter, just effectively- I had to a babysitter two days ago to go pick my kids up from school. And so it's like, is that a rideshare service? Am I paying for taxi services in addition to like chatting? I mean, I set her up to like give my kids cold pizza. So not a whole lot of chef preparation, but you know, like food service delivery and cleaning and like, yeah. Right. But nobody say that when your babysitter comes, you should parse it out and pay sales tax for the hour that they're driving your kid or cleaning, but not for the hour that they're sitting on the floor playing with your kid. Like it's it's just not logical. It's babysitting is its own activity. Yes. So I mean, I always thought that was the right answer, but we never got the answer from the court. But we did get the procedural mechanism, 
which, you know, I think, I think should be used more often. And like I said, it's not always available. You have to really have the right facts for it. But when you have those facts, why, why wait? You know, and it pushes the state to take action, make decisions. Yeah. This is, I think, the hardest thing where taxpayers really struggle with whether to take it to litigation. The money needs to be there, but it's the time, the expense, the effort, the uncertainty of living with the in-between moments. And then government's not willing to concede or deny or whatever, right? And it really makes business yeah. hard to work through. It, yeah. It's tough because for government, often it doesn't cost them that much more to just say, we're drawing our line in the sand. If you don't like it, take it to court. Right. Right. But on the, on the taxpayer side or the tax, you know, on the vendor side, if it's sales tax, it's a huge decision, right? It's expensive. It's internal resources. It's soft costs, like a reputational hit, like, Oh, this big profitable company, is challenging this state during a down economic period, right? Like, like you know, there's a lot of sensitivities that go into the corporate or I guess not just corporations, but like the business side decision on whether to litigate, not just how likely are we to win. Yeah. But all of these soft considerations. And often I, I you know, in my experience, those often rule the day. And yeah. those are often what make the decision, not our likelihood to win, but the impact on our internal resources, the the public, you know, if this gets publicized, you know, various things. I, I do work for one company who will not litigate. They they just have a corporate policy of they're not going to litigate tax issues. They'll take things to see how far they can go and settle, but they are not going to litigate. I work with another company that is like, we are not going to settle. Right. <laughs> we are going to litigate. Um, and they do. And you know, we're we're in court for them. Um, the other one, they won't, they won't litigate. It doesn't matter how right they are. So we'll take as far as we can. We'll go to informal appeals, uh-huh. but they won't go further, which means, you know, I know we're gonna settle when we get there. And, you know, I that makes a lot of sense for the company for their internal policy purposes. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we're getting to the right answer, which is what right. And we don't trail. always leave something out there for people to follow. So there's no no breadcrumb trail of what do we do next taxpayer? You know, well, that's kind of the frustration. I feel like there's all the secret stuff that happens that you know about because you settled that case, but it was never published anywhere. So right. it makes it very difficult to combat what I would call an unruly auditor. So. It, it's actually why it's so important for us to get along right? Like there, there are a number of us who are direct competitors, but are also friendly and like connect with each other. And like, what are, you know, obviously not breaking confidentiality provisions and closing agreements, Mm -hmm. but getting a sense of what's, you know, what's going on and, and, you know, what issues are we seeing go up, where the settlement ranges, we have to talk to each other because the states know, you know, each individual department of revenue knows what it's doing with all different taxpayers mm-hmm. and in the various departments of revenue, you know, not to say all 50 of them sit down and chat, but through some of the regional groups like Nestoa or CEDA, or I can never pronounce the Wasada, I hope I'm Yeah, I was going to say the Western state, whatever. Yeah, Yeah. they get together and talk. And then through the MTC, they get together and talk. But I think not often enough are taxpayers getting together to talk or their their advisors. And I think we often can find, and there's reasons not to, right? They have competitive issues, et cetera. But, you know, when when we, when, when the 
when the representatives and advisors can get together and share information, we can, you know, deliver a better service to our clients. Right. And get a better idea about like, well, have you thought about this approach? It may not be like the typical path, but maybe you want to pivot. Like you said, getting a declaratory judgment. Very Mm -hmm. interesting um, legal strategy. Yeah. Well, because it's the answer from the state. It's like, well, then you should just get it. Like if, if there's ambiguity, you should just request like a private letter ruling. That takes a while. Well, that takes a while, but then I'm like, I, there's no opportunity for disagreement, right? Because if it's, if you get a, like a private letter ruling, isn't that it, you know, from the state's perspective? Yeah. In some states that private letter ruling would be another ticket to court, right? You, you know, you would have the right to challenge that in court, but not, you know, I I don't know that that's always true. I know it's, it's sometimes true, but you know, the biggest problem, I think it's what, you know, would what Judy was just saying is the time it takes. I got an advisory opinion for a company in New York. It took us four years to get the advisory opinion. Wow, I changed firms, but more <gasps> importantly, <laughs> but but more importantly, the company was acquired during that period, oh. and it was, it was a sales tax advisory opinion, and it related to New York's very, in my mind, overly aggressive position regarding sales tax on SaaS, software as a service, which I've been very vocal in challenging since 2008 um, when, when they came out with it. And so I had advised the company that I did not think that their service was SaaS under New York law, and they were not collecting. And we went out and we sought an advisory opinion, right? That's the right thing to do, right? You, the, the states always say, if you're not sure, go get an advisory opinion. So we filed it in 2016, December 2016, and we got it a year ago in, in November. And But here's the ironic thing. In that period of time, the company was acquired. And they got escrowed? Or? No, no oh. the due diligence report concluded that that service was taxable. So they started collecting tax on it. And for years, they were collecting tax. And now we get an advisory opinion that says, no, what the advisory opinion agreed with us that it was not taxable. Oh, wow. They were collecting, right? They started off not collecting. That's when it was, you know, the advice that I had given them. And then the new owner started collecting based on a big four due diligence, you know, study. And then, so, so I call, and I didn't know this at the time, but I call them up and I'm like, oh, we finally got our advisory opinion. We were right. I'm emailing you a copy right now. And I was like, great. But what do we do now? We've been collecting. And the other problem is their product evolved in that time, right? It wasn't exactly the same product. It was pretty similar. And I, you know, my opinion was still that it wasn't taxable. But the guy was like, well, wait a minute. Are we now concerned about False Claims Act? Yes. Is somebody going to come after us because we've been collecting and there's an advisory opinion that says we shouldn't have been collecting? Yep. You know, and it's just so the amount of time it takes to get an advisory opinion. Now, not to say, you know, ours took a really long time, not to say they always do. And some states are incredibly efficient in getting them out the door. But, you know, again, it's just it's not a perfect solution either. It takes so long that you've changed your position or your product has changed. And what is it if your product is different enough that mm-hmm. that set of facts that was described, right? Is it even binding anymore? Does it even give you the protection that you need? Well, and it's interesting you say that because you went out, you went to the effort, they went and said, oh, well, we're just going to take the position of deferring the tax, so that, you know, pushing it to the customer, which means we all pay more. 
You know, so now we've got more tax going to the government than they're entitled to. And yet, what do you do by that? You fault, you say, I'm embarrassed to say I overtaxed you. Like now you got to go get refund claims. I mean, what a mess. And you know, it's interesting. You find governments on audit saying to you, well, you can always tax it and the customer can apply for a refund. Right? right. Nobody right. does that. Because refunds just, are also very efficient. But it's okay that, we, oh yeah, right? Like they don't get done right away. And, yeah. Anyway, really... It's just unfortunate, isn't it, in these sort of gray areas about the time it takes to litigate them and how you try to do the right thing for your clients and for the taxpayer, you know, yeah. including myself, who creates more costs and consumption. Right. And that that brings up an issue where my view has changed a lot over time, and that is whether to pay or not pay, mm-hmm. right? Like we all have heard, don't pay, don't pay, don't pay, right? One of the godfathers of our field, that was his slogan. And, you know, for many years, the common wisdom was not to pay your, right? Not pay assessments. Now, some states you have to pay to play. Yeah. You know, Washington, for example, but other states you don't have to. So we just changed our role in Colorado. It didn't used to be that way. Yeah. So now you have to pay or you don't have to pay. Don't have to pay. But that's a huge issue to pay. It's a huge issue to pay, but the bigger issue is if you don't pay, the interest becomes, it becomes a whole other player in the analysis. And I, I have changed my story on this, right? I now advise companies for the most part to pay. Let's pay and seek a refund. Or in some jurisdictions, if we're litigating, we can pay and get an agreement with the state, like a deposit type agreement where it's not really paying and seeking a refund, but it's mm-hmm. making arrangements with the state where the payment is made to stop the additional accrual of interest, but it's not converting it to a refund claim. Right. Um, but, you know, a few things have changed my mind on that. Yeah. Um, the amount of time it takes to litigate. And the very high interest rates that states are charging. I mean, let's mm-hmm. not even talk about Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin, it's like 15%. Like that's an outlier. Um, but for the most part, we're looking at 5 6 7% interest. You know, not every company is going to go invest that money conservatively and do that well, right? So, sure, some can. But um, the, the way I'm really seeing it become a problem is, so we have our audit. Right. And so years are going by and interest, you know, is is accruing because nothing is paid. And we still think we have a really good chance of winning this. And the audit is is being conducted by the tax department at the company, right? And they're they're fully on board. We get the issue. We're we're good with this. We feel strongly. We're emotionally connected to the issue. We're gonna win. And so they're fine not paying. And interest is sort of out there in the back of everybody's mind, but we move forward. Okay, now we get to litigation. And what I see happening more and more is once we get to litigation, the role of the tax department folks at the company is is reduced at least a little bit because the general counsel folks at the company are getting involved. You know, I've seen this much more in the last two or three or four years versus 15 years ago, where we'd litigate just interacting with the tax folks, so interacting with the general counsel folks. And they're looking at the numbers and they're seeing this liability plus this big interest number. Mm -hmm. Federal law changes, right? The deductibility of interest has changed. Mm -hmm. And we are often, you know, the audit starts a couple years after the tax period. The audit takes two or three years. The litigation takes two or three years. You know, what do they say? Seven years is that magic number where the interest might 
double, you know, might match your assessment. And so now we're looking at matters where even if we got a 50% settlement now, mm-hmm. they could have just paid 100% back then mm-hmm. and then the same exact spot and not have had all of these resources and right. and whatnot. And what I'm finding, especially now when I'm dealing more with the general counsel folks at a company, is they look at that interest number and the reserve. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, if we can just get rid of this for those, you know, for the reserve, let's just get rid of it rather than focusing on what's the right answer, what do mm-hmm. we keep going forward? Like, are we right or are we just going to pay to be done? And I'm speaking largely in generalities. No, I used to say always extend an audit. I used to say you always want to sign the fake waiver out of the gate. I have sort of said, maybe we don't want to do that at all. Maybe we want a number. Maybe we want to work against what they're going to throw our way as opposed to be on the back end of some crazy thing they make up like once they look at our stuff. So I have really, I have just found you can't always have a one size fits all. And you have to make different decisions strategically Mm -hmm. about how you manage some of this and the expectations you know, because everybody's all riled up, right? Oh, we got to do this. It's the raw, right thing and blah, blah, blah. We're being taken advantage of as a business, which is, I feel, unfortunately, often true. But the time it takes to get yeah. there is disheartening at most, you know? This concludes the first part of our episode with Leah Robinson. Make sure to tune in next week for the rest of this conversation. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.